This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Money equals power. Power equals control. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host. And today I'm with my guest, Casey. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. You're very welcome. You're an abuse survivor. You know, even after all these years, I'm so uncomfortable with the word abuse. And that comes from believing for so long that emotional abuse and gaslighting and financial abuse wasn't really abuse. (laughs) It was just bad behavior. and. Until I started really examining my own life and the impact that financial abuse and emotional abuse had on me, um, it wasn't until I started writing a memoir called Our Better Selves that I understood it's all abuse. And physical violence is a horrible component of abuse, but Mental abuse, emotional abuse, and financial abuse are equally devastating. So, yeah. So I'm here to rat out my husband. (laughs) (laughs) How long were you married for? We were married for 25 years. And during the last, I would say, five years of our marriage, It was really turbulent because we were married for 12 years before we had children, and I basically financed his career. He was uh, a producer, director, writer, brilliant man, but he did not play well with other children, (laughs) and he couldn't quite get his career to go where he wanted it to because he was very stubborn and didn't want to work with other people. And so he started a little company and, you know, he did um, industrial films, but I was the one that worked full time. I slept five hours back and like my commute was two and a half hours from our home. So I was like, you know, in transit five hours during the day. And I still managed to hold down a career and also do a writing project. I was actually writing a musical. And we were married for 12 years and I was getting tired of waiting to have a family. And I finally said to him, it's either now or never. I was approaching 40 and he didn't want to give up his lifestyle because he had it really good. You know, he had somebody that was I mean, I made a lot of money in the film industry, the commercial film industry, and um, he got to stay at home when he didn't have a job, so he didn't have to worry about going into Manhattan every day, and he could 
you know, work on his own projects when he wanted to. And having children would complicate that. But I finally gave him kind of an ultimatum. And it was like, well, it's either now or never. Or maybe I have to start thinking about moving on. And suddenly he decided we was okay to have kids. Things really changed in our relationship after our twins were born because a couple of years after they were born, I decided it made absolutely no sense to have children that were two and a half hours away from where I was working. And I just constantly was stressed because, you know, we had tons of daycare issues. And finally, I just gave up my job in Manhattan. And that's when the dynamic of my marriage changed completely because I was no longer the breadwinner. I no longer had agency in the financial decisions of our marriage. And he questioned every dime I spent from groceries. Like he thought $400 a month was a large amount to buy groceries when he was home alone. And you know, we didn't have children. We had a housekeeper, but suddenly we couldn't afford one anymore, even though he was working for the first time in our marriage full time. So that's kind of where the financial abuse started was when I didn't have that big salary anymore. Right. Because they make it almost impossible then for you to start saving. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I'd spent a lot of my resources just even trying to get pregnant because we had to do in vitro because by the time we had kids, I was 42 and had twins. So, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. It was quite interesting and it's not that he didn't love the children. He really did. He was a good dad for the most part, but I think that he also he had a very, very skewed perception of my contribution to his life. And suddenly it was as if I never worked a day in my life anymore. You know, he started denying that I had ever supported him. Or even at one point, this was years later, I came across all the invoices that I had because at that time in the film industry, even though I worked uh, full time, I was considered a freelancer because that's how they got away with not paying, um, you know, unemployment taxes and everything. So I, I invoiced my company biweekly and, you know, he's, he's like, you, you never had a job that could support us. And I'm, I'm throwing invoices at it's like, you're crazy. I mean, here, it's all here in black and white. It's all here in black and white. You know, I was making, again, like this was going back 22 years ago, and I was making over $10,000 a month. But he claimed that I never did anything to contribute to his life, or his ability to, you know, work at his leisure. And every dime that he made with his company went back into his own personal projects. So there was a very skewed perception, but I didn't figure it out. I didn't, I didn't realize 
that abuse. I did. I didn't. You know. I didn't think of it as abuse because he didn't strike me. Right. Right. It's yeah. a very misconception. Everyone thinks that that's the only form of abuse, and that is mm-hmm. so far from truth. Emotional mm-hmm. and mental can hurt just as bad. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I've been trying it, to recover from financial abuse for twelve years now because he left us penniless when he he passed away um, when my children were thirteen and left us without a dime. He refused to get life insurance because he said he did not want me to profit from his death. <laughs> yeah. He did not. He did. Uh, what about his kids? I know. I know. It, it was wow. by the by the end. What happened was we lived apart for a while. It wasn't intentional on my part. He lost his job and he wanted to move to Canada because we had had a pro- uh, vacation property up there. So I agreed and we went up there. And we're going to start a business and he like four months after we went up there, you know, gave up our home, we sold our home, you know, all these things to make this happen because it was his dream. And (laughs) I'm glad you're sitting down because he actually left four months after we moved up there. And he left me and the kids in a foreign country to start a business on my own. Oh, he left you, left you up there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, he took a job. I mean, we were still married. He took a job back in the States. He never told the person that he took the job um, with, who was his old boss, but their their company had um, merged. So he lost his job. And the other guy went and he started his own um, company. And he never told him that he had been living up in Canada. He had, the guy had no idea and he never discussed it with me. He just came, oh, guess what? So-and-so called and, you know, he offered me a job and I accepted. Yeah. So it was really, I know <laughs> when I say these things, I, I, I just like, I'm like gobsmacked, but it was the best thing that happened to me because when he wasn't there it provided so much clarity in terms of, oh my God. I mean, like my whole life changed. I started having a sense of self again. I wasn't constantly walking on eggshells, afraid that I was going to, you know, piss him off because he had such a bad temper and he was constantly under stress. And it, gave me my life back. It gave me my sense of self back. And it was not until like almost three and a half years later, when he wanted us to move back to the States, because, okay, I'm so glad you're sitting again. (laughs) His primary reason that he told me was that my business was not successful enough to support the entire family. So I was a failure, even though 
much of the reason why I couldn't support the family had mostly to do with the overhead of the building that we bought. We had rental properties and we had tenants that used to like, say for an example, if the rent was like $500 a month, their electric bill would be like $500, $600 a month. They would leave the windows open. They would, you know, trash the place. We had all sorts of problems because it was an old building with, you know, like the furnace. So it was really a lot of overhead that was draining the profit from my business. But I wasn't successful enough. So I had to give up my business and move back to the States. That's what he wanted to do. And the unfortunate thing was, is that at that point, I kind of thought he was having an affair. I thought maybe that's the reason why he wanted me to go back. He wanted me to divorce or wanted to divorce me. So I consulted an attorney and they said, you know, because of the international thing, you have to go back. And I tried to leave him when I got down there. but. I had no job. I had no car that was really working, like the instrument panel in my car wasn't working. Um, he refused to get a phone for me, like even a landline, like a basic landline that cost $12. We can't afford that, he would tell me. I had to give him receipts if he gave me money to buy groceries or gas. He wanted a receipt to prove that I had spent what I had spent and he expected change. The lease for the apartment was under his name. He had opened up a, a bank account without my name on it. So I knew where things were headed. It was all about control and controlling me. And we found out about six months after I moved down there, I, I had tried to leave him a couple of times, but, um, he was dying. He had, he had esophageal cancer and he was dead within about a little bit more than a year after I moved down. And again, no life insurance. You know, he just, he basically left us penniless. So. Do you think he resented you for having children? It wasn't the, well, yes and no. In some ways, I think that he resented that they took up my time a little bit. But I think the big thing was that he resented me because I was a woman that made it in the career that he had studied for. And he was, I mean, I'm not saying this to disparage myself. But he was so much more talented than I was in terms of producing and directing and editing. I mean, I know how to produce, direct, and edit, but that's what he studied. And he couldn't make it in an industry that was very discriminatory against women. And he hated the fact that I I didn't have a college education at the time. Now, now I have a master's degree, but I, you know, like I was, I, like I thought that he always thought of me as his equal. But what I realized over the course of our marriage 
was how misogynistic he was because anytime he had to deal with a female employee, she got where she did because she probably gave somebody, you know, like sex on the side or, you know, it it was constantly, he couldn't give a woman credit for achieving what they achieved on their merit. It was, there was always some other reason and it wasn't just women, but whenever he encountered anybody that had some, something that he wanted, it was because they got it from their family or they got it, you know, without earning it. And he, the way you put it in terms of resenting, that was the biggest part of our relationship obstacles is he resented the hell out of me. He resented the fact that when I moved up to Canada or we moved up to Canada, I think that he thought that I was just going to fold. And I didn't. I mean, I made, you know, like I had a thriving business, you know, like I made, and, and he didn't have the input that he wanted because he was like 200 miles away. So right, resentment. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, since you were working and he wasn't working, then why didn't he keep the girls and you could have nicked daycare right then and there? Well, first of all, I have a boy and a girl, but (laughs) I guess I just assume. (laughs) I know. I know. It's okay. I have a boy and a girl. Uh, Overdone. (laughs) Um, He was so incompetent. And it comes to that. I'm sorry. I, I remember going to the grocery store one time and he called me up to ask me what to do because there were no clean spoons. You oh. wash them? Yeah. And I think a lot of it was purposeful. You know, I, I know a lot of guys that are like that. It's like they play this game where they're completely helpless. And so, you know, and I was stupid enough to jump in all the time and, you know, oh, honey, let me do this. I'll take care of it. You know, you're really bad at cooking. And I'm I'm really grateful that he didn't because, again, I know he loved his kids. I have no doubt about that. But he loved them at a distance. You know, it, it's like he didn't see our kids the way that I think that most parents do. I'm I'm trying to think of an ex okay, I'll give you an example. They're like three years old and he wants to take them to midnight mass for Christmas. They're three years old. And he was furious with them because they weren't paying attention at three years old to a mass that they were, you know, they were falling asleep, they were antsy, they were, you know, but they were bad kids for not being able to, at three years old, go to a midnight mass. And there were all of these, you know, he he had expectations of their behavior that was completely unrealistic for their age. For an example, my son has terrible allergies in the fall. He wanted him to play soccer in the fall. Your expectation is, is that because you want this, but even though, you know, it was detrimental to, you know, it's like you can't play soccer with a 
a hanky up your nose. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you're trying to catch the ball and you're sneezing. And, and, and for him, that was about behavior. It wasn't about circumstance. You know, there, you know, he just wasn't being cooperative. Like, I'm like you gotta be kidding me. Apparently he didn't hang out with a lot of children. <laughs> no, he was, um, he had an older sister and he was the youngest and I don't think he ever like did anything like babysitting and he came from a very, very small family. So I, I think that he had some narcissistic tendencies and I think that he kind of had a very skewered view of who he was and who everyone else was in relationship to him. You know, it's like he constantly used to say he was the black sheep of the family. No, he wasn't. <laughs> you know, he just wasn't. He wasn't. His family, like, adored him. They were proud of him. But he perceived of little slights and held on to them. I I don't even know how to explain it, but, you know, he would... He just had a very skewed perception of how others acted and reacted to events. It was just insane. Usually people who are like that, who are really negative, Mm -hmm. really feel that way about themselves. That's the way it makes them feel better. So I'm having a bad day. So I'm going to make you feel like shit because then I'm going to feel better because now you feel like shit. That's it. Exactly. That's yeah. I mean, and that comes back to the whole thing about, you know, not having an insurance policy. That was payback for things that he perceived that I had wronged him, you know, that I somehow did things, you know, and, and I don't make any claims to being perfect, not even close, but it was retribution, but he never thought twice about how that would impact his kids. And that I will never forgive him for, because I have worked really, really hard to climb out of poverty and I'm still facing it. You know, it's it's like there's a, a there's a poverty trap where if you make under a certain amount, you at least are eligible for services. But if you make even a little bit over that, then it makes it really hard to, to um, afford those things that you no longer um, have services for, like primarily things like healthcare you know, or groceries, you know, just trying to afford groceries, you know, I've been there. Yeah. I was just, I was a single mom for 13 years and I made just a little bit above where you can get help. So Mm -hmm. it's like, so you'd rather me not try, not work and get everything for free. I can get free, free rent, free groceries, free insurance, all that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be that. I want to actually work and do something with my life. And you get penalized for it. That's right. That's exactly what it is. 
It's the, yeah. the poverty penalty, you know, and, and I live in Massachusetts. And again, the biggest obstacle, I'm a diabetic. I, I have to, you know, adhere to certain things for my health and just, you know, affording, um, you know, food that's not going to blow up my blood sugar and my weight, you know, all those kind of things. I have to weigh everything very, very carefully because if I don't get the services that I need, I probably would have to make another fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year just to break even for, you know, those, you know, to offset. And it's I, I mean, I work my ass off. I do. I work my ass off like all of my life. When I had the restaurant, you know, that's what we had done up there. We had a little cafe. I work 16, 18 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. And so I'm not afraid of working. I work, I work so hard, but, um, again, it's that poverty penalty, I guess it would be called. Yeah. It's not fair. The system it's messed up. You should have had like five more kids. You would have been golden. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be I you know, it'd be eighty by the time they <laughs> Although it was really funny because I was down in Maryland recently. I was speaking at a, a convention down oh well, not a convention, but um I don't know, it was like a an awards thing. And one of the women that was there with her I don't know whether it was her husband or significant other, but she had twins at fifty three. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I always felt like, you know, because I'd go places and people would be like, oh, your grandchildren are so cute. And I'd be like, they're my kids. <laughs> so, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. 53 she had them. So. <laughs> uh-uh. No, nope. yeah. that's my time to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> Did he ever treat the kids like that? Like tell them they couldn't have certain things or hold things over their head? Well, here here's the thing that's really odd. And again, like when I look back at it, we had a really, really weird relationship because he never saw them. He he rarely saw them. When he was working, like after they were born, like right before um they were born, he took a full time job. He left at seven o'clock in the morning. He usually wasn't home until after seven. And most of the time on weekends, he was gone working on some properties that we had. So his time with the kids was very, very limited. And I think he, you know, you, you asked about resentment in some ways. I know he resented all the time that I got to spend with them. But it was because of things that he had decided that, you know, he was in this loop. So I don't, I don't think that he treated them that way. I think he wanted them to have a good life, but he didn't know how to give of himself. And that's, that was a big obstacle. Like, like if he was spending time with them, he wouldn't get down on the floor and play with them or, you know, play hide and seek or peekaboo or something like that. 
we have a joke, like the twins and I had this big joke because his idea of spending time with them was making them watch things like Lost in Space or Star Trek because those were his favorite shows. Oh, spend time with daddy and watch these these TV programs, which they hated. <laughs> so it wasn't like, oh, you know, daddy will sit down and watch The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody with you or, you know, whatever show they were interested in. It was like, right. watch Star Trek with me. For the ninth time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that's what it was. It was like usually an episode he had seen like 30 times. But so, yeah, it was kind of crazy. But he didn't really spend a lot of time with them because then when we moved up to Canada, they were nine or yeah, they were nine. They were in fourth grade and he was gone. Two weeks would come up there, you know, like every couple of weeks. And again, sit down and watch, you know, Star Trek with me. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking. Brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. So. No, I think it's interesting, though, that you said, I know he wanted them to have a good life. Mm. Well, he he left them penniless. What kind of good life were they going to have? Well, I think because he he didn't really know. This has always been a question. I don't know how much he knew in terms of how sick he was. The the really startling thing was, is that his last job was as a copywriter for a pharmaceutical industry. He was very smart. Most people that he worked with thought that he had his PhD and that he was a doctor. He understood a lot of medical things, which I don't. I'm, I'm like, okay, that's a thermometer, I think, you know, <laughs> think that's a step, you know, I'm like really bad. And I did find out after um, he had passed away that he told my brother-in-law that he suspected he was really sick. But I don't think that he knew exactly how sick he was. And everything kind of like crashed quite suddenly like he went he finally went to the doctors in it was like i think like the end of march and when he got the test results they they basically told us they had 2 weeks to live he lasted 6 months part of the problem was that 
the cancer that he had, he had esophageal cancer and he had a tumor on his vertebrae that basically broke his neck. Ooh. So he was walking around. He was actually jogging. And with a broken had, neck. Yeah. He had the again, like I guess the way like it was um it was the way that the tumor had compromised his C7 vertebrae. And so it was the type of thing where when he got to the hospital, they would not release him until they devised a special collar to isolate his head so that if he tripped or sneezed or something like that, it wouldn't have the same impact. Like when a dog gets neutered. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the way it was. He couldn't, he couldn't move. It was terribly uncomfortable. It was awful. Like it just, it was, it was pretty bad. So I think all of that just crept up on him. I don't think he thought that he was that bad off. I certainly didn't think that he was that bad off. I thought it was the type of thing where he was going to go to the doctors. They were going to tell him what was wrong. He might need some surgery and he would be recovered. And we were just in shock. So, yeah. And and the thing is, is that he was covering up some of these things in terms of not telling me, um, you know, that he had been to... like. I gave him a list of doctors to go see, but he didn't tell me that he had gone to see anybody because at that point, our marriage was just like, I seriously thought that at one point, because he was, he was so stressed and so full of anger and hostility, I really thought I was going to end up on the front page news that family, you know, family man commits you know, what's it, what's it called? Um, like a murder suicide? Well, not murder suicide. I don't think he would ever commit suicide, but I thought he was going to, I started to worry that he was going to be one of those guys that came home, slaughtered their family, and then maybe moved on. I thought that he was like egotistical enough, and you know, like the John lists or, you know, these, these, what's the Chris Watts or whatever, you know, these- Brad Bishop. Yeah, yeah. But it it all, I think, it just came crashing down on him. I don't think he realized just how sick he was. Right. Yeah. So, and I I also think, okay, this is kind of funny, but it's not funny at the same time, but I have a warped sense of humor. (laughs) So I don't really think that he understood, or if he did, he was in grave denial about how much he left us, you know, like how he left us financially devastated because he had a 1966 Mustang convertible that he was convinced I could sell for $40,000, $50,000. It had been sitting in a garage that we paid, or I should, I, I paid for every month 
hundred bucks every month for like 20 something years. And by the time I got to the point where I could look to see about selling it, it cost me money to sell it because the bottom was all rusted out. He had left a piece of furniture in there that I guess gathered moisture all those years and it kind of like rusted out the bottom. But he oh, always no. <laughs> But he always talked about, oh well, you know, you'll have the Mustang to sell. Like that was that was his insurance policy. That was how he justified not having insurance. You could you could sell the Mustang. You know, you're you're gonna get like forty you know, $50,000 for this car. Didn't happen. (laughs) No, that's horrible. (laughs) Yeah, that was my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it didn't get better for a long, long time. It really didn't. But, um, but here I am on the other side. So yeah, I mean, you got to keep going. Life is going to throw you and everybody a lot of twists and turns, but yeah. it's not the end of the road. No, no. I mean, it. I have to say it did take me a long, long time to untangle all the emotions because it was really hard watching the father of my children. And I love this man so much for so long and watching him waste away and having to deal with his inability to understand that even though I wasn't dying, that it impacted me as well. You know, he used to always say, you are not the one who has cancer. You are not the one who's dying. No, I wasn't, but, but I was dying inside because I'm, I'm frightened. I'm, I'm like totally frightened. I, you know, we're living with his sister and brother-in-law in their basement. And that was a shit show, you know, just from the perspective of, you know, you're, I'm, we're dealing with his parents and, you know, his sister who's losing her only brother. And so, you know, you're walking around on eggshells trying to be the accommodating spouse and all the gains that I had made while I was living in Canada were completely erased because we had moved. When I moved down from Canada, we were living about, I would say six hours from where he grew up. And then we moved back to Massachusetts where he grew up so that he could be near his family and that he could get better care than where he could get when when we had moved to New York. So I, I knew no one. I had no support system. My family, I'm the youngest of seven, scattered around, you know, like I had no friends. I was just as, I, I'm not a depressed person, <laughs> as you can tell. It's like, you know, I'm just not. I was depressed. I was completely depressed for, I'm going to say like at least a two, you know, two years. And then I finally started to come out of it, but it was, it was really, really hard. 
you know, like everything in our married life centered around the area that we had moved to. He was buried there. Our last date night was there. It was where we got married. So there were all these ghosts of him that I had to confront on a daily basis. And then I had to deal with the fact I had the property in Canada that I had to sell. I had no car. And, okay, so again, shit show. We hadn't filed taxes and somebody had stolen his social security number. So I was dealing with identity theft, trying to battle, I know, getting getting like the, all this money that was owed to us from, you know, like a tax return. And on top of that, my accountant had sent all of my tax documents to the street address that I lived at, but he sent it to the wrong state. <laughs> he he put like the street, the new street address, but it, like the old town and city. I mean, the town and state. And then he died of a massive heart attack. <laughs> God. So I had reason to be depressed. I had reason. I I mean, I I am not a wimp. <laughs> I I'm usually a very very strong individual. But again, it's like I had all of these obstacles, you know, hit and this was all during during the economic recession that we the we experienced back at that time. So, I couldn't find a job. I hurt my knee, so it's like <laughs> Again, I have reason to be depressed. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, when you're just hit with like thing after thing after thing, mm-hmm. I mean, at one point you're like, enough already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. White flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And trying to deal with kids that had lost their father and dealing with, you know, they didn't just lose their father. They, you know, they loved Canada. They loved where we were. They loved the fact that there was a cafe that was named after them and um, it was trying to keep them on track and trying, you know, not to let my emotional upheavals like, you know, sink them into depression. So there were lots of, of obstacles to overcome. And it, it really wasn't until I sat down and I wrote my memoir I I wrote a memoir called um, Our Better Selves from Secrets and Lies to Healing and Forgiveness. And it wasn't until I sat down and I wrote this memoir that I even realized that I was abused. I couldn't deny it anymore. I started looking through all of our emails because I never... (laughs) I don't think I've ever had an email address that I've ever cleaned out. It's like, oh, I'll just start a new one. So I had every single email that we had exchanged between the two of us. And I had my journals and I had all of these things that once I started rereading them, it was, oh 
my God. It was eye opening. So yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like people don't understand that, like, a lot of times when you're in situations like that, it's very easy to fall into denial because you don't want to believe that this person that you love and you've supported and that you're married to can be, you know, can treat you like that. Oh, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it took a long time for me to kind of untangle things. And it's why I I just recently launched an initiative called I Know Why She Stayed. And again, it's kind of like my, it's, it's my attempt at not just healing, but helping other women to heal because I didn't understand that because he didn't strike me, that I was in an abusive relationship. And yet when we had moved down from Canada to New York and again, every single dime that he gave me, I had to account for. So I had no way. I, I tried to leave once and move, you know, to my brother's house, but then I ended up going back. But I started this initiative because it wasn't until I started writing the memoir that I, I realized now I get why my neighbor when I was 12, we were living in a duplex and her husband used to beat the shit out of her every single night. And we would hear through the wall, you know, her crashing into the wall. And it would be like, why does, you know, like I thought at 12, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she take her five children and just leave him? She she barely spoke English. She was like this little very, very petite Korean woman. She had five children under the age of 10. She had no job. But in my mind, I'm like, well, why doesn't she, why doesn't she go? And it wasn't until I started writing about what had happened to me that I realized, ah, you know, you stupid shit. Now I know why she stayed. I, she stayed because she couldn't go. How was she going to go? Where was she going to go? And back at that time, I mean, it's like, not that they had like all the, you know, like most women that are in domestically abusive relationships never go to a shelter. And a lot of times they end up dead, you know? So, yep. yeah, yeah. That's why I try to have the signs. So if somebody is like, mm, is this abuse? Am I being abused? Like if you are dealing with things like this, yes, that is yeah. abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they can start little. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really true. I didn't see it for the first 12 years because we had that very honeymoon kind of like relationship where I was gone from like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, sometimes I even stayed in Manhattan for the night. So we only saw each other on weekends. So I didn't recognize it until I started putting two and two together as I was sitting down to write the memoir. And I'm like, 
Uh, yeah, the signs were there all along, honey. They were. <laughs> I just, yeah. didn't, I just didn't know it. it. And and you know who who ever heard of the term, you know, financial abuse back then? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. actually, I feel like, just coming to light within the last few years. Yeah. But it's yeah. definitely a thing. If they make it to where it's impossible for you to save, move out, mm-hmm. do things that you want with your friends, then mm-hmm. it's a big yeah. red flag. And debt. Like, one of the things that he did was he left us in, like, so much debt. He, when I was up in Canada... This is okay. It's like again. I have. I admit it. I have a very warped sense of humor, but it's it's like he wanted me to believe that it was my fault that we had so much credit card debt. All of the debt related to properties that we owned back in the states that he was trying to renovate, and he just ran up massive i mean it wasn't like he was out buying motorcycles or boats or whatever he was trying to like renovate and fix up these properties so that this is what he told me for his retirement but anyway when i'm up in canada he's running up all these massive credit card debts and yet somehow that was my fault. Don't know how. Wasn't my name on the receipts at Home Depot, but somehow he justified that it it was almost like because I wasn't making enough money to pay for every expense there was up in Canada that I was depleting his income and forcing him to like put these things on credit cards. I didn't even know he was spending that. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So you couldn't have made it up there on your own? You would have had to come back? The only reason why I had to come back, I I think I could have made it. I had a lot of, I had a lot of support in the community. I, you know, it's, it's, I went to a lawyer and I asked her if I wanted to divorce my husband and he's living in the States and I'm living up here, how complicated is that going to get? And at that point I knew how precarious we were financially and I just couldn't, I couldn't afford to stay up there in the last six months before he, um, you know, like I said, he opened up his own bank account and he stopped paying any expenses up there, including anything that related to his kids. He stopped contributing to the mortgage, the insurance, and anything else up there. I could barely get him to come up there and help me move. He, it was like not his problem. He just, seemed to think, you know, it was all my responsibility. And that's the way he acted. It was like, um, again, his, his perception of things was so skewed. And I I don't know how to explain it. I, 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 I know that I have 
or I had the physical evidence to back up what I was saying. Because one thing that a lot of abusive, you know, like a lot of people that are abused encounter is gaslighting. And he used to try to gaslight me all the time. He would tell me like this did happen or it didn't happen. And when I would search for proof, otherwise he would come up with another excuse like, well, you forced me to do it because you're so persuasive. Yeah. One of those. Yeah. If you accuse me of it, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like we, when we were up there, we started like, um, we started a little music festival and we sat down and we worked with a producer up there and her husband had a band and he was so excited about doing this. and things fell apart because she was a woman and he didn't like working with her. So everything was her fault when things started to fall apart and the partnership like fell apart. And according to him, it was all my fault because he never agreed, even though again, I had emails and all these other things that clearly indicated that he was a part of this and he had agreed to it. And when he couldn't wiggle out of that, he said, well, I did agree to it, but only because you persuaded me. Yeah. Yeah. They're always the victim. Yeah. Yeah. And he was kind of in a perfect situation because he could tell you know, he, he was lying through his teeth to his sister and his, like, I don't know what he told his, his, uh, mom and dad, but like, and that's how I finally figured everything out because again, this is kind of warped, but it's true. He left his notebook behind with all of his passcodes and stuff to his emails. And he, he, he didn't know that he had left it up at the cafe. And I found it and I was able to log on to his email account and I found out what he was telling everybody else about me and saying that I did this and I did that. And like one of the things that he claimed was that I never followed through on like immigration stuff. I had emails back and forth from our attorneys I had met with, you know, our, he had, I mean, he was with me when we met with our attorneys. I had canceled checks from our attorneys. And yet he was telling everybody down here what a bad mother I was and how I spent all this money that was his. And again, you know, he was in a perfect, you know, because if he told his sister something, She's not going to, you know, like question him. She's going to believe it's my fault. So, yeah. And that's something that they do. You know, they gaslight, they lie, they manipulate. They try to get other people to, you know, believe that it's not them, it's somebody else. And that was really hard to live down, you know? So Absolutely. But you need to know that 
you did the best that you could for you mm-hmm. and your kids and yeah. you triumphed. So yeah. you, you should be very proud of yourself. I am. My kids just turned 25 and they are absolutely lovely human beings and they're thriving and you know, they're just really good kids. They're, they, they're very centered. They're kind and loving. And I am just so grateful that it turned out okay. You know, even though it was rocky there for a while, <laughs> you just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. If anybody was interested in reading your memoirs, where can they find that? Um, I have everything on a website and it's called CaseyRogers.com and it's K-A-S-E-Y-R-O-G-E-R-S.com. And I have information. I've actually written two books. I wrote one, the memoir, but I also wrote a work of fiction that is getting marvelous reviews but a lot of the same themes there's a little bit of financial abuse in there there's um it's really a woman's story it's like like a woman's empowerment story and um very very relevant to a lot of the things that we're actually experiencing right now even though it it's it's considered historical fiction because it happened in 1974, but it's called The Color of Frost. And, um, you know, so those are on there. But also, if anybody wants to learn more about the initiative, um, there's links on there. And one of the things that I'm trying to get people to do is to tell me their stories about what, how you know, like a lack of income has impacted their life. Because one of the things that I'm trying to do with the initiative is there's a huge connection between financial abuse, domestic violence, and the gender wage gap. Because women are paid on average almost $12,000 less a year. And I don't know about you, but I could $12,000 would make Uh, a huge difference. And I'm doing, um, and also like in June of this year, 60 years ago, they passed the equal pay act. And yet we're still in a situation where women on average are making about 20 cents less on the dollar than men. And over the course of a woman's lifetime, that adds up to almost a half a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. So, but my belief is that one of the reasons why a lot of the things that we're encountering right now in terms of um, reproductive rights, voting rights, everything else, it's because those that want to maintain power have figured out that if women can't work and they have no financial equity in their marriage because women don't get paid for the work that they do at home, then it makes, it makes us easier to control. The pandemic 
really illustrated the impact of not working has on women because globally domestic and domestic violence just increased exponentially so when a woman isn't able to even if she's not like earning the same exact amount if she has no financial resources it has an impact on domestic abuse so there's all sorts of like connections there on um, the website, but if anybody wants to contribute a story, what would $12,000 mean to you? I could finally get a plumber to fix all my leaks in my house. I've got like three faucets that aren't working, but I can't, I can't afford to get them like fixed. So like, yeah, you know, so yeah, so it's caseyrogers.com and, and I would really appreciate if listeners you know, like could identify with the the subject. Um, it it really needs to be exposed what the gender wage gap really is because to me, I I don't call it a gender wage gap. I call it systemic financial abuse of women. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, you might be onto something there. I never really thought about it because back in the day we weren't allowed to work, and now they let us work, but yeah. they don't want to pay us. <laughs> that's exactly what it is it's it's like women are generally forced to take lower paying jobs work part-time and why do we do that because we you know it's the same reason why I quit my job I had to constantly be compromised whether it was caring for my children or working in a career that had me you know like commuting five hours a day, but I made a a buttload of money. I chose my kids, you know, I chose my kids. I, you know, of course I'm going to choose my kids. And that's, you know, and, and after that, the only jobs I could find paid me a fraction of what I had been earning. And it's almost like a setup in some ways. It's like, you know, there's so many different reasons why the gender wage gap still exists, but it's been 60 years since John F. Kennedy signed the called Equal Pay Act, and things haven't really changed. So that's what the initiative is about. The initiative is about helping others to connect the dots and see how that impacts our ability to be equal. I'll make sure I add the links in the show notes. Sounds good. I really appreciate it, Tiffany. (laughs) Yeah, not a problem. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I've totally enjoyed talking to you, even if I talked a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) You're fine. This is your story. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Make sure you guys check out those links Don't forget to check out the episodes of the month on the Den Network. We got Horsin' Around and The Real Drunks. That's R-E-E-L, Drunks. Those will be two fun podcasts to listen to. And don't forget to check out Strictly Stalking. Make sure that you are following me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, because I'm going to start putting more videos out there. And I'm not going to be putting that on like Spotify, Apple, stuff like that. 
So make sure that you are following me. That way you can always be in the know. All right, you guys. We'll talk crime another time. Bye.